Scikit-learn is a set of machine learning tools in Python that provides easy-to-use interfaces for building predictive models. In a previous episode with Per Harald Borgen about machine learning for sales, Per illustrated how easy it is to get up and running and productive with Scikit-learn, even if you're not a machine learning expert. That episode about machine learning for sales really sparked my interest in Scikit-learn and made me understand just how big machine learning is getting, partly because the interfaces for doing machine learning have gotten so easy to use, so self-serve. And today's episode, we go deeper on Scikit-learn. Srini Katamati hosts today's show, and he interviews Andreas Mueller, who is a core committer to Scikit-learn. Srini and Andreas discuss the background and implementation of Scikit-learn, and they walk through some prototypical workflows for using it. We will continue to do shows about machine learning, and as always, send me an email with any of your recommended topics and any other feedback you have on the show. Thanks for listening. What is the goal of the Scikit-Learn project? So, I can speak from my own perspective, so we don't have like a board or anything, and so we don't have like one entity, but so for me, the goal of Scikit-Learn is to make machine learning very easy to use and accessible so that a lot of people can use it for their problems. We put a lot of emphasis on ease of use, on documentation, on a simple API, so that uh, scientists from all kinds of fields or people that work in companies can really easily pick up machine learning and apply it for their problems. Makes sense. Um, so what were people using before Scikit-Learn? And how, how does, so how does Scikit-Learn address some of those, so those pitfalls? So it depends a little bit on the community. Um, some people were using R. Some people were using um, MATLAB. Some people were just using like C++ stuff. It's um, if, if you're like if you're doing research with C++ or data science mm-hmm. with C++, you're really really slow. Even though the code runs very fast, every time you need to set up a new experiment, you need to like read in a new file, compile with the new file name, whatever. And every time you want to show an image, you need to write code to show the image, and it's really, really slow. Um, and so that that kind of that's not not a great environment for interacting very quickly with your data. Um, I mean, in Python and R, there were both both things um, before Scikit-Learn. But um, they were not as like as comprehensive. I think um, I know like there was PyBrain, which is like pretty old. Right. There was uh, Py uh, wait MVDP, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm. But um, yeah, I mean a lot of the stuff that. Uh, Scikit-Learn added to what was there in Python was, I think, that it was comprehensive. And uh, in particular, it had like bindings to loblinia and lobsvm, which was very important for people. And then at some point, we got random forests, and then basically everybody started using it. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely, I mean, I use, as I mentioned before, like I use Scikit-Learn on a weekly basis. I I think the API is definitely 
the best part, I mean, with just three lines of code, I can kind of run and test almost all of the major machine learning models, um, which is really, really quite impressive. Um, so how, how is this achieved? You know, do you have a really simple structure? You have a really simple API. What is, you know, do you guys assume a standard set of input uh, when you're training a model? Um, how does scikit-learn represent the model? Um, yeah, so let's start there. So one of the things we achieve being sort of very simple is that we use very few types. So basically the data is always a NumPy array. And basically mm. all models assume that it's a float array. And basically that all the data is just continuous features. In some sense, that's kind of limiting because right. we have all the uh, some issues with like miss- how to represent missing data or how to re- represent categorical features. Um, when we started Scikit-Learn, there was no pandas, so uh, uh-huh. and that, that was also not really the, the goal. So most scientists work with like just float data, and so this is our data representation. There's no class called data; you just give it a NumPy array. That makes it very easy to integrate it in other tools. Um, yeah, I remember that there are some other machine learning libraries that have a data class, and that immediately puts some barrier between a user who wants to get All stuff right. done and doesn't use whatever class you defined and uh, the library. So we want to make sure that there's as few types as possible, so there's sort of as few things as possible that the user needs to learn about before they can use the tool. No, that, make, that makes sense. Um, what, what do you think are the limitations of just uh, taking in a matrix two-day array uh, for most of the methods? I think for most of the methods, actually not a problem. It de- definitely l- uh, limits what we can do. In terms of the interface, so it's very tricky to do collaborative filtering with this interface. It's, um, yeah, like recommendation systems. It's also, you can't really do reinforcement learning with this interface. Um, But this is basically things we said, this is out of scope, and if you want to address these, you need a much more complicated interface, or at least a different interface. In terms of uh, data, I mean, you can also not really do time series, because time series have different length and so on. And um, so you can't really represent them as one homogeneous array. And then types, obviously, are kind of tricky. That's not really um, a problem for most machine learning models. Most machine learning models only operate on floating-point numbers. Mm-hmm. So it's more a usability thing. So in R, a lot of the models automatically uh, convert your data into some f- uh, format that can be um, com- consumed by the model. Scikit-learn is very explicit, so you, basically you need to say explicitly what do you want to do, and Scikit-learn doesn't do any ma- kind of magic um, to transform your data. No, that makes sense. Um, interesting. Uh, so maybe one, one thing that I should add is yeah. there's, um, for tree-based models, it actually would make sense to have okay. like uh, categorical data types. Right. And we're working on this, but it's kind of tricky because of the data structures we're using. It's tricky to have a categorical uh, column in the NumPy array, so we need to add some additional mask that says these columns are categorical. Interesting. So do do you you think that's going to affect performance, or is that just a trade-off that you guys are willing to make with the masking process? I don't think it's going to affect performance. I I mean, the... No, it's more like a. It's it's not the nicest data structure because the are you have to pass in two different inter, two different objects. They're not right. coupled. Um, <laughs> but I don't think in terms of performance it, it's worse. I mean, it's not. Maybe in terms of 
Yeah, I guess inefficiencies for the splits, it could be worse because we're using float to represent integers. But I don't think actually it's, I don't think it's going to be an issue. Okay, interesting. Um, so you actually gave a talk at the 2016 Data Science Summit where you discussed in depth the principles that really drive the development and maintenance of Scikit-learn. Could you give us an overview of those principles for listeners who haven't seen the talk? Uh, now I need to remember a talk that I did like <laughs> a month ago. That's tricky. So it's really, yeah. I mean, one of the things I mentioned already is like, I actually mentioned multiple of them already. It's focus on documentation, focus on ease of use, focus on consistency of interfaces. Don't create complicated class hierarchies. So basically, there's two important pieces that you need to know about in scikit-learn. One is what we call the estimator, which is the model. Mm -hmm. And they all have the same interface. They all have a fit method and... Um, they either have a predict method or a transform method. And sort of, if you know these three methods, you can do most of the stuff. And then there's NumPy arrays, and all the data is in NumPy arrays. And so you have very few things that you need to worry about. Then, in terms of consistency, not all of the, not only all of the models have the same interface, but also, grid search looks like a model, for example. And pipelining multiple steps together also um, creates a model again. So there's everything is like pretty uniform. Right. Then, I mean, other important things are, I guess, like, we make sure that API is compatible. I'm not sure if I talked about this in the... Uh, in the data science summit talk, but we make sure that we don't break anything um, mm -hmm. between versions. We, uh, we really we write a lot of documentation. We write a lot of testing. We have code that tests if the error messages are good. Uh, uh -huh. w when people give like misshaped input, yeah, I don't know. I think these are like the, the main points. It's really keep things simple, and uh, I mean. In particular, not only for the users, but also for the maintainers, because right. it's an open source project, and so you can't just tell someone, here, deal with all this legacy code, which is what yeah. people and companies do all the time. <laughs> you can't like, you can't really hire people for an open source project, and if you want people to keep maintaining it, right. then you need to make it easy to contribute, and you make it easy to maintain, otherwise people will just abandon it. Yeah, no, no, makes sense. Um... That's interesting. So give us uh, give us a sense of the kind of end-to-end -end workflow. So you have a data set. Um, you know, your goal at Learn is to make it as easy to use as possible. So how would, you know, for people who don't do machine learning on a day-to-day -day basis, what, what does the workflow look like for a really simple model? Starting with a data set. Yeah. So, I mean, so first I'll give you the simple answer, and then I'll give you the complicated sure. answer. So the simple answer is, let's say you want to do supervised tasks like... Um, classification. Simplest case, you have two classes. You want to say, for each data point, does it belong to class A or class B? So then you have a, a NumPy array that represents your data. Like Each row in the data set is one data point. Each column is one feature, one thing that describes this data point. Then you have a vector of responses um, or class labels in this case that says, um, for the training data that you have collected, these points belong to class A, these points belong to class B. And you want to mm -hmm. use this training data where you know the answers to build a machine learning model. So the first thing that you do is you split your data into a training part, which you use to build a model, and a test part, which you use to validate the model. 
if you just used all your data to train the model, you wouldn't be able to say afterwards whether uh, your model is any good or not. So you need to hold, hold out some data, pretend you don't see it, and this uh, stands into future data to which you want to apply the data, the, the model. So, I mean, usually you want to put this model into production in your company, whatever, and you want to make sure, or you want to at least know how well will it perform. And so the test right. data is to give you some estimate of how well it will perform. Okay, so you split the data. Now you pick a model. Say you pick a random force classifier because your friends talk about them all the time. <laughs> um, you uh, instantiate the class. So you, you import it, you instantiate the class, and then you call the fit method with the data uh, as one parameter and the labels as another parameter. And that basically builds the model. The fit method is sort of where all the learning happens. And then the, the model will be stored in the object you instantiated. So mm-hmm. the random forest object you instantiated will contain the model. And if you want to make predictions, you can call the predict function on any data, so on the training data, for example, or on the test data. And the predict function, uh, predict method will return class labels according to what the model thinks. Then you, um, there's also a score function or mm-hmm. score method. I always say function when it's a method. The score method, and um, which will compute how well you're doing. So you can. Uh, call the score method on the test data that you held out and you'll know how well does your model do. So in this case, you know, random forest for classification, for people who, you know, who, who are new to the problem, what kinds of things should they watch out for? Obviously, people talk about overfitting a lot of time. They talk about different kinds of uh, you know, classification accuracy measures. So how, how should someone think about that problem? So... I guess in particular for random forest, um, I mean, all all the models have a lot of parameters to tune, and um, I don't want to go into details here. But for random forest, you need to make sure that you have enough trees in the forest. There's a parameter mm-hmm. called an estimators. The larger you set it, the better it will get, and um, but the slower it will get too. Like it will right. linearly get slower, and so you need to set it high enough to get a good. Uh, good result in your test set, but you don't want to wait uh, forever. And also, it uh, consumes more memory. And But other, other than that, uh, random forests are pretty hands-off, and they'll just work. In terms of uh, metrics, it's very, most pro- problems in the real world are imbalanced, so often you have like 99% of the data is in class yep. A, and 1% is in class B. And if you use the default metric, which is accuracy, then <laughs> saying always class A will give you 99% accurate results. Right. And that's not very helpful. So in, uh, if you have very imbalanced classes, you should look at other metrics. And you should also, you need to think about really what is it that you want? What's important? Do you want to find the 1%? How, how bad is it if you get some of the other ones in there? Um, right. I usually like to use the... Um, AUC metric area under the rock curve, but um, this more general general measure that works quite well for imbalanced classes. Mm-hmm. But uh, you should really need to think about, um, yeah, what do you care about? It's, right. it's the same even if you have balanced classes, but then it's not like not as obvious. But accuracy, accuracy like the fraction of correctly classified points, is rarely what you care about. Right. Usually, you care about something else, and you should 
think about more what you actually care about. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, I think the classic example is like predicting default rates on, on you know, lending data, you know, where, you, you know, 95% are just fine. You know, the, the data, you know, shows that they paid it off on time, but 5% shows that they defaulted on the loan. And so it's like, I think what, you know, what you're talking about specifically is that if you have, if you train a really powerful model like random forest or even logistic regression, then it, it'll, the model will be biased towards just predicting you know, hey, this guy is not going to default on his loan because that's 95%. 95% of the time, that's what happens. And so if you just use accuracy, then you'll get a skewed skewed idea. Um, that's, that's interesting. Um, so what, what does the roadmap look like for making scikit-learn work on larger data sets? Depends on who you ask a little bit. But so I think um, we should focus mostly on streaming stuff. So out of core learning, there's already a partial mm -hmm. fit method in a lot of the um, in, for a lot of the models. We don't have it for tree-based models yet and that's kind of tricky. You need probably need a different kind of tree like you could implement the Mondrian forests that might be a thing. Um, but so I don't think we should try too hard to make scikit-learn parallelize over a cluster because that's not really... I mean, everything is written built on NumPy, on, built on an, around a NumPy right. array. And uh, if you now replace this with some other data structure, like a RED that lives on a cluster, then like none of this is going to work anymore. And mm. so maybe it would be better to write a lot of it like from scratch. Right. At least the, the algorithms, because uh, you really have to do quite different things if you have uh, if you want to do an algorithm data parallel than what we did in scikit-learn makes sense um, are there any efforts I think I think you mentioned one in the talk are there any efforts to make scikit-learn like that, that same that simple API work on something like spark or another tool well yeah, it depends a little bit on what you mean so you can run the stuff that's embarrassingly parallel on spark relatively easily and there's the right. Um, Spark sklearn that's actually done by mm -hmm. the Spark guys and basically allows you to run grid search over a Spark cluster. But that means like each model individually is built on a single machine. If you want to uh, do something more distributed, you have to use mllib. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's a particular reason why mllib couldn't, why they would right. implement the same interface as we did. <laughs> um, I mean... Maybe I'm not too closely familiar with their design process, but basically they re-implement the, the algorithms, oh, and uh, that's maybe what you want to do. Yeah, makes sense. Um, interesting. Um, so in the in the talk, you you mentioned you briefly touched on automatic machine learning and black box model optimization. So what you know what is the difference between kind of a highly interpretable model? That's maybe linear regression or something like that, and kind of this black box, you know, model. So just let's start with start with those two different uh, concepts. Well, I guess linear regression is something that a human can somewhat interpret, and you can write down a formula, and mm -hmm. you can sort of communicate it, and you can probably write it down on paper, depending right. on how many features you have, um, and you can you at least sort of know well. If this part changes, what is the uh, what is the answer going to be? How is the answer going to change depending on the inputs? 
if you have a more complex model like a random forest or a neural network, then this is uh, a lot trickier. Like for a um, random forest, if you say, oh, I changed this uh, input, right. what will the output be? Like the <laughs> computer can compute it, obviously, but you sure. can't really write down a large random forest on a piece of paper. It's yeah. There's going to be t- thousands of trees and uh, or at least a couple of hundred, and a human can't really comprehend that. Right. If you do more automated machine learning, like the way you um, win competitions or get really good results, if, if you average the results of multiple of these very complex models. And so then that becomes even less interpretable. Right. Makes sense. Um, so it seems like what you're talking about is, is ensembling models. Yeah. Uh, so what, is the scikit, uh, what support does scikit-learn have for ensembling? Well, there's a bagging classifier, which allows you to do arbitrary bagging. I mean, the random forest and gradient boosting are particular kinds of ensemble. Um, And there's a voting classifier, which allows you to do um, basically averaging of multiple models. Interesting. Um, Interesting. Uh, So, you know, going back to what I mentioned about automatic machine learning, um, what what excites you about about automatic machine learning and what kinds of um, things do you guys want to add to scikit-learn to help with that? So the thing that we're probably going to add in the short term is Bayesian optimization for um, grid, like not grid search, but parameter search. Mm-hmm. And we're probably also going to add something where you can search over the steps of a pipeline, which you can't do currently. And so why am I excited? Because um, at least... For the machine learner, I mean, like the machine learning people spend a lot of time trying out different algorithms and right. uh, different models and different parameter settings and to spend a lot of time tuning the model. And that's something I think that can be automated. And I think people can do better stuff with their time. So if we can have the right. algorithms do that, then uh, we don't need to waste our own time with uh, uh, searching a very large search space. And we yeah. can focus more on the problem definition or what kind of features to use. Makes sense. Um, makes sense. Um, so I actually spoke with Peter Wang from Continuum Analytics a few weeks ago, and he actually really embraced the fact that the SciPy stack uh, allows data scientists to use the high-level interface of Python with the you know, internal performance optimizations of something like C. In your talk, you actually mentioned the two-language problem and how the separation makes it harder for someone uh, to switch from being a user of Scikit-Learn, for example, to being a contributor. So what are your thoughts on something like Julia, which is trying to kind of do all that in one language? So some of my formulation uh, about the two-language problem actually comes with from a talk by my colleague, uh, Stefan Kapinski. Uh, oh, I don't nice. know if you know him. He, I mean, he's yep. one of the creators of Julia. Um, but he really, I think he really uh, makes a great point there, and I found this quite a problem in practice. Found even a problem for myself. I mean, I, I can write Python and C, but I need to change the tool chain. I can't really debug as easily anymore, and that you need to do C, uh, CGDB to step down in some weird sec faults. And uh, <laughs> I, I hope to, we left that behind a while ago, but we didn't. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm not sure if Julia is the solution. Julia is definitely interesting. I haven't used it that much myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't really comment too much on the language. It seems to be very targeted towards 
scientific computing yeah. and, and less of a general purpose programming language. And Got I it. think that will that means it will always be sort of niche. Um, so it's maybe a good replacement for MATLAB. And I think it was sort of meant as that in some sense. Okay. I mean, it looks exactly like MATLAB if you've looked at it. Or, yep. Yeah, um, but Python has the benefit of being like... Um, general purpose programming language. So a lot of people already know Python, even if they don't do data analysis, data processing. Right. And so like, uh, that, that makes the community a lot bigger, I think. And it makes it much easier for people to get into the community because it's a much more general purpose programming language. Makes sense. Um, interesting. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, is that, is that something you've ever been interested in, uh, you know, trying to create a new language or a new framework completely um, that is kind of a full-stack data science language? I find it very fascinating. I'm very interested in discussion about new Python compilers. There's now a list on Python compilers uh, that is done by Nathaniel Smith, one of the NumPy developers. And mm -hmm. there's... but So the thing is, creating a new language is tricky because you need to move everybody to the new language. And I'm right. pretty sure I'm worse at programming languages than all of the junior <laughs> developers. And so I don't think I'm a good person to create a new language. I thought about, should we all move to Julia? Um, and it doesn't seem to be happening right now. I mean, I can't really say why it's not happening. And... So, I mean, you can use all of R and all of Python from Julia, but mm -hmm. uh, people still prefer to write Python. And right. I think one of the things is that Julia makes it easier for the developers in a sense, but I'm not sure how much easier it makes for the users. In the SciPy stack, there's a lot of people that just use the stuff, and mm -hmm. um, so they actually don't care about developing. Right. And right. Uh, the Algorithms in Python are already fast enough because someone uh, put yeah. in the effort to implement them in C. And okay. so the, the pain point is with the uh, people that implement and not yeah. with the people that use. And so maybe there's no motivation for people to move away from Python. I don't know. I see. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, that's actually a really good point. Um, Cool. Actually, so we can start start to close off the interview. So what excites you about the future of Scikit-Learn? What kinds of, you know, you mentioned in the talk that you wanted to add feature name support. Um, and, you know, what, what, in general, like, what kinds of things really excite you about kind of next three years of Scikit-Learn? I think I want to focus a lot more on, like, interpretability and even more intuitive uh, use. And so... In particular, addressing more the needs of the data science community. Scikit-Learn was developed very much with like uh, machine learning researchers in mind and with scientific applications, and mm -hmm. it really has um, quite different demands than what like a data scientist uh, needs. Interesting. Yeah. Um, do you have any kind of specific examples that you that, that you excite you? I. They're all boring. Uh, <laughs> I'm excited about the boring stuff. So, I mean, like the feature name support, having things that are more easily work with categorical um, variables, like better pre-processing, better imputation of missing values, um, and sort of more automation. 
and also more ability to introspect. So currently, it's kind of hard to visualize a lot of the stuff. There's, right. Oh, actually, this is like this, I haven't mentioned that anywhere else because it's very new. We're gonna include some um, plotting code into Scikit-Learn. So Scikit-Learn so far has stayed away from plotting, okay. and, but um, I complained enough so that we're now <laughs> going to include some plotting code so that it makes it easier for people to interact and visualize the models. Interesting. So, yeah, I think you actually, you may have mentioned this at the at, when you gave the talk, actually. But so is, does that mean like creating, uh, use, you know, interfacing with matplotlib to create charts or like yes. what, what does that entail? Okay. It's basically, yeah, I, I guess in uh, in the talk I mentioned, it would be cool if we had this, but we're actually going to put it into the scikit-learn package. So okay. when I wrote the, when I gave the talk, I thought I'm going to have to create my own package, but we're going to put it in scikit-learn oh, now. Nice. Um, yeah, basically it's, um, yeah, writing the custom, the, the matplotlib code, you need to plot a confusion matrix once and for all so you can uh, yeah. visualize it easily. Right. Yeah. And uh, I mean, there's and for learning curves and for plotting the results of grid searches and for plotting coefficients of models and so on. Interesting. Um, cool. So the, the last question I have for you is um, obviously you know you're a maintainer of Scikit-Learn. Um, so how can how can people who are using Scikit-Learn the first time uh, contribute back to the open source project itself? So we actually have a very um, elaborate contributors guide. So if you go to documentation and then development, uh, it'll tell you all about how you can con uh, contribute to the project. And so I always say the requirement to contributing to the project is you either need to be able to speak Python or English, then you're good. <laughs> um, the best thing is look at issues in the issue tracker. There are some that are marked as easy issues, and these these should all be able. Uh, you should be able to um, address these. And the main the main thing about these easy issues is they might not be super impressive, but they get you started with the workflow. Right. Yeah. And so you know how do you set up all the Git branches? How do you push and pull and whatever? How does the review yeah. workflow work? What happens with the continuous integration and so on? And so once you have got one of these easy issues in, and you have some code in Scikit-Learn, you can be proud, and then you can start to. Um, address some more uh, more interesting problems makes sense uh interesting that's pretty that's pretty that's pretty great um awesome well you know thanks for thanks for coming on the show and you know i hope you enjoy the rest of your day yeah you too thanks thanks to symphono for sponsoring software engineering daily symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.